0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies podcast on the New Books Network. Bede Haynes here. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which I live and pay my respects to elders past, present and future. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Melissa Harper, who has published a book called The Ways of the Bushwalker. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Bead. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you.
0: And your dog's welcome as well. (laughs) Yes, all right. Okay. Now, Melissa is a senior lecturer at the University of Queensland in the School of Communication and Arts within its Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences. Melissa has a PhD from Sydney University with research interests extending into social and environmental history and politics with a speciality in the history of Australian bushwalking and research into Australian food culture and if I can be so bold as to say so, this author can write a book. It's not just an academic book it reads very very well, which was an absolute pleasure to get a book with academic depth and a real style for writing. So I'll begin with the back of the book. It says Australians have always loved to step out into nature, whether off track or along a marked route. Bushwalking and organized long bushwalking an organized long distance walk in rugged terrain that requires maps, camping equipment or a family day out is one of our most popular pastimes. This landmark book now updated was the first to delve into the rich and sometimes quirky history of bushwalking. From its earliest days of European settlement, colonists found pleasure in leisurely strolls throughout the bush, collecting flowers, sketching, bird-watching, and picnicking. Yet over time, walking for the sake of walking became the dominant motive. Walking clubs proliferated, railways organized mystery hikes attended by thousands, and Paddy Palin established his equipment business. Bushwalking, Serious Walking Was Invented. Now, Melissa, I would like to ask you how you came to write this book.
1: Well, I had a really long genesis. Um, It actually came from when I was doing uh, my honours degree at the Uni of Sydney. Um, In the previous year, I'd done a course on um, Sydney Between the Wars, and I looked at tourism in the Blue Mountains in the 1920s and 30s, and I just realised that bushwalking was really growing at that time. Uh, and that, that its history hadn't really been explored, and so for my honours project, I looked at organised bushwalking in New South Wales. Again, in focusing on an interwar period, uh, and then decided that you know this was um, a story that really needed to be told in terms of that uh, longer and uh, more extensive history of bushwalking throughout Australia. So I embarked on the PhD, and then it became a book.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Now, could you one thing? I did I did comment earlier on your writing style, and it does seem to me to have some unique features for an academic book and one technique I liked i'm not sure if this was a conscious choice but I'd just like to you know, comment a little bit on the writing style is throughout the book there are it's it provides a social history of bushwalking in this country and an environmental history and then it's it's punctuated with these little stories of various people who do important things and you talk about them so you have george morrison or william hamlet and that the stories just begin there's no introduction to them it's as you're reading along and then this story just begins and you've never heard of this person before and at first i think gosh this is I feel a little bit uncomfortable but then you get used to the technique and it's just great it doesn't there's no fanfare you just built into the story was that a conscious decision
1: Yeah, it really was. I mean, one of the things that I really wanted to do when I wrote this, even as a PhD, was, you know, I I was very conscious that I wanted it to be a book for the general reader. Um, I didn't want to write a stodgy academic text. I wanted it to be really... you know, based on strong academic research. But, you know, I wanted, I mean, I think bushwalking as uh, such a popular Australian activity, it deserves to be something that is read broadly. So I really focused, um, you know, I'm really pleased that you've um, made those comments about the writing because it was something I really worked hard at. um, uh, And I really did focus on storytelling. And I guess that's what really drew me to... uh, to the topic in many ways because like you say there are all these really interesting people uh, and interesting ways in which they walked in the bush so i really did want to just put those front and center those kinds of stories of of different kinds of people because they helped to bring to life the range of walking that took place in australia and and you know you know in a longer history than i had anticipated when i started I, i really thought i would be focusing on Uh, the 20th century. Uh, And, you know, as I just did more and more research, it just took me further and further back. Uh, And yeah, all these fascinating characters.
0: Well, that's great. Now, the, the way I would like to progress this interview to get you to talk about your knowledge of this area and inform all of us is to progress through a few subject areas. And the first one I want to begin with and ask you a little bit about is what walking actually is and the societal role that it has. And I'd like to invite you to talk with one image you put at the beginning of the book, which is you make this reference to in the 1700s in England, Jane Austen had her characters often walking from places for leisure. So walking was no longer a form of transport for these people, but it was converted into pleasure. How did Is that is that how you would think about, what part of this project was to actually talk about walking as being something besides simply walking because you don't have a car or a horse mm. into something else? Yeah, definitely. So that really became a defining feature of what
1: walking was and the kind of walking that I wanted to look at was that idea of walking for pleasure. Uh, so that was a kind of defining characteristic because, as you say, you know, I mean, walking was a form of transport and particularly for people who couldn't afford, uh, you know, a horse. So, Walking was a real sign of poverty, or at least being lower down the social scale, um, you know, in Great Britain. So if you if you had uh, a horse, you know, it meant you didn't have to walk. Uh, if you were walking, it usually meant well you couldn't afford um, other modes of transport. Um, but when so yeah, in something like Austin, when you have um, those people who could afford um, to to walk, to to, to ride, sorry, you know, to use other forms of transport, but they were choosing to walk, um, you know, something else sort of starts to happen and they're choosing to walk because they're wanting to experience the the, uh, outdoor environment. Um, And, you know, I just, yeah, I love um, some of the ways in which Austen uses walking and as do other um, novelists at that time. It really shows you the way in which walking was becoming uh, an important part, um, you know, of of, uh, social life. Uh, because it was something that people would do to you know, turn about the garden uh, with someone else, you know, have a conversation. Uh, it might be a time of sol- a solitary pursuit. It might be some way, something that people did when they wanted to, to think uh, and just to sort of connect um, with their inner self or connect with the environment on their own. Uh, but, yeah, it was pleasure in um, the act of walking and also in the environment that people were uh, walking in. So also that you know that romantic walking that people like uh, Wordsworth and, and Coleridge and wrote about in, in their poetry, uh, as well that real connection with uh, with the environment.
0: Yes, and with that notion of the romantic style of walking, when it came to Australia, one I'd like you to comment on when the in the early days of the settlement in Australia, there seemed to be an idea. That some people thought we can walk around Australia as though it's England, but then they couldn't because it's Australia is a rugged country, or at least where the where people settled was quite rugged in in Sydney, and walking seemed to have taken on a different type of, of, of role of being more about discovery and exploration and actually making somewhere to walk. So could you comment on on that?
1: Yeah, that's right. So yeah, the environment was just so different. Um, often heavily forested uh, as you say so there weren't sort of I mean there were Aboriginal um, paths uh, so there were sort of tracks in a sense but um, of course early colonists didn't know where they were going Uh, so walking was this sort of uh, opportunity to discover the uh, what the local environment was like and of course they were often enormously curious um, about this new place that they were in, because for them, it the you know the trees were different, the shrubs were different, uh, the climate was different, and so they really um, used walking as um, you know it was about scientific discovery. So botanizers um, would be looking at the the plants, uh, etc. And and those were kind of I mean things like um, you know botany and and being interested in natural history were were quite common pursuits of, of um, the elites at that time and so of people that came to Australia. So walking was that, you know, really did become for many early uh, colonists that way in which they would come to know um, the environment, but often also, you know, I mean, they found it difficult. So one of the first uh, people that I talk about as a, a walker in Australia uh, was George Morgan, who was a surgeon on the first fleet. And he writes about his walks uh, that he undertakes. So for him, I mean, he doesn't need to go into the bush, um, really. He's going in there with other people who are interested more in the plants, you know, people who are are sort of botanising often or shooting, you know, taking their weapons in there as well. So there's the idea of walking for sport. For him, it was just this uh, curiosity. He wanted to to see what the environment was like, and he wrote about it um, to his his brother. Uh, And he talks about... um, you know, the damage, the, the bush tearing at their clothes, um, setting up a wigwam at night and the lighting a fire and, you know, sitting around a, a campfire <laughs> and drinking and eating the sort of salted meat that they've taken. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, you know, quite a few instances like that where people are writing about walking, and you can kind of easily miss, when you know, in reading the early accounts of walking. I mean, I think sometimes those, because walking is just such a taken for granted activity, you can often miss. Uh, sometimes I think it took me a while, you know, in terms of reading those early accounts to, oh, there's someone walking. Oh, they're walking for this reason, you know, or they're walking for a different reason. Um, so, again, that was, yeah, that sort of process of really just um, working back and, and seeing the range of, of walking that people were undertaking
0: yes and another aspect of the early days of European settlement in Australia seems to have been a bit an inability at first but then they gradually come to get this ability and I'd like to ask you about this is how how the Australian landscape and the Australian bush could be seen as being beautiful in its own right, rather than as being a poor a poor match to what England offered with its soft woodlands and, and flowing creeks. And there seems to have been a role in that for art, landscape painting, photography, and also if you could mention Guide Alice. she's a, Alice Manfield is a lady you mentioned. She seems to have had a role in this as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. So... As you say, it, you know, it does take a while and and, it's, and it's, I guess it's different, you know, for different people as well. Some people, you know, really from the very early um, 1800s um, are experiencing great pleasure and finding beauty in the bush. George Boy's is another one that comes to mind, you know, from from very early times. Although often for him it was, it was because the sort of beauty was there, it was because it was a reminder of um, being with his family in, you know, wood, wooded locations. Um, in, in England uh, but you know gradually there is that sense in which people become more familiar with uh, the environment here so uh, yeah, various artists from the 1850s, uh, von Gerard um, was one and as we and particularly as we move towards the end of the 19th century so you know the Heidelberg School of Art um, is really influential because it's that idea that artists are uh, I mean, and you know, it's a bit of mythologising goes on, but sort of seeing Australia through Australian eyes rather than through, you know, English eyes. So that sense in which, yeah, people are becoming more familiar um, and finding the gums uh, attractive, because often, you know, I mean, they are very different. Like you say, they're not that sort of soft um, green. Uh, there isn't the change of the seasons in in the same way. Uh, so you know, the gum tree for some could seem monotonous uh, and, you know, ugly. I mean, I find that such a hard way to look at them because I think they're so beautiful. But I I guess, yeah, in those days when you were used to such a different environment. So, again, your yeah, artists are really playing an important um, role there and, and, yes, photographers. So photographers are going into places, you know, at the end of the, uh, the 19th century like uh, the Blue Mountains um, in Sydney and, and starting to... Um, take photographs that would often be displayed in trains, uh, for example, so that, you know, this is when you're getting that beginning um, of what we might think of as bush tourism or nature tourism in the 1880s, 1890s, uh, and Guide Alice um, in Mount Buffalo in Victoria uh, was a really yeah, important in that area in encouraging people um, to walk in that sort of Late nineteenth, early twentieth century, and so you know, her family went to that area as uh, farmers, but they diversified, you know, and um, recognised that people were starting to, because of the growth of the railways, that played a hugely important role in being able to take people from city locations um, to those you know more distant locations from the city, like Blue Mountains, uh, like Hillsville, like Mount Buffalo um, in in Victoria. So the trains were absolutely crucial to this as well, and I guess um, what also should be understood too is that people actually having leisure time. So again, this is more you know upper middle and middle class people at this particular time that um, are getting that sort of leisure time, so they can take up this opportunity. So people like you know John Monash. I mean, he is again, he's I think a fascinating story. One of our, our war generals, and people would know him from. Um, his career there in World War One, uh, but he, you know, in his youth was an inveterate uh, walker, and was somebody that visited Mount Buffalo um, time and again, and stayed at the Manfields' very rudimentary chalet. Uh, sometimes they camped as well, and um, yeah, Guide Alice led walks. Um, Monash writes about Guide Alice, um, and she, you know, she had she, she made herself this amazing pantsuit, uh, which she walked in, which uh, attracted quite a lot of interest uh, in its own right because to have a woman, you know, for a start, uh, leading people on walks uh, through, you know, this mountainous terrain that she knew very well, um, but they didn't, and and wearing pants. So she did have um, an outfit as well that um, was a skirt, but she, she really liked her pantsuit uh, and became quite well known for this um, pant suit that she wore when she took people on on walks. So yeah, she um, you know she's another fabulous uh, character that facilitated the, that rise of, of bush tourism uh, at, in that period.
0: Right, and with women and their access to bushland and their dress, that appears mm. to have remained relatively controversial, probably up until the nineteen fifties. And there was there, a lot, and there was even church movements to try and restrain <laughs> the evil effects of, of women walking in the bush, particularly in pants. And there was a famous female bushwalker who walked bare feet. Yes. Um, could you comment on the on the, the 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 role of well, why women were treated like this in the bush, and just to comment on the social history around that?
1: Yeah. Well, I think. You know, the bush became such a part of an emerging Australian identity in the 1880s and 1890s, and it it was really the kind of bush that was celebrated in that and, you know, in in the art, in the literature, so in poetry, you know, and short stories of people like Lawson and and Banjo-Patterson, the bush that they're really celebrating was the working bush, you know, the rural settlements, the sheep and the, um, and the cattle. And so that was very much seen as a male environment and it really valorised the bushman, the bush worker, you know, the swagman. Um, there are, you know, there are some, I mean, there is the drover's wife in Lawson um, and, and Barbara Baton, but, you know, for the most part, yeah, the bush was seen as this very male environment uh, and not a place for women and so when even when you when you're getting people going to uh, the bush for leisure and going into those forested environments you know i mean that remained that lingered that idea that this was uh, an activity because it was physically demanding um the attitudes towards women at that time were that they you know weren't capable of uh of walking so the first bushwalking clubs that formed in the 1890s. They tended to be male only. Uh, it took a while for, well, um, you had some sort of female clubs that emerged uh, in 1922 in Melbourne, for example, and a mixed club in Sydney in 1927. But, yeah, so bushwalking was uh, women were would, would often discriminated against. Um, there was a... a men's walking club, the Borough Gamble walking club, and they would have ladies' days. They would invite women uh, and then be, you know, surprised because women could, act. they demonstrated despite wearing these, you know, voluminous 19th century dresses, um, they demonstrated that they were perfectly capable of uh, walking. Uh, And similarly, there are quite a few newspaper accounts in that period in the early uh, 20th century as well about women walking um, and, you know, sort of attracting attention and people being surprised about their abilities. As you get into the 20s and 30s, you know, which is really when bushwalking becomes incredibly popular and you do get this sort of craze uh, for hiking, sort of a different version of, of bushwalking. Um, you know, women are really demonstrating that they, they that they can uh, walk and, yes, they are challenging social norms uh, around uh, physical capability and around dress. So, I mean, it, the wearing of shorts for both men and women was controversial. Um, you know, now it's so commonplace that we would wear shorts, but even in the, the 1920s, uh, for men, so to, to leave work on a Saturday afternoon to get onto a train uh, in your walking gear, uh, because that was sort of quite unusual, um, people would comment and laugh at, at men and women wearing um, shorts and so, you know, that sort of think men were going off to play a game of football. Um, but yeah, even more controversial for, for women. So, in the, the Melbourne Women's Walking Club. Uh, I mean, the photos of those women in the nineteen twenties—they tended to wear still skirts or bloomers uh, rather than shorts. So Dot Butler, the bushwalker that you referred to, um, who became known as the Barefoot Bushwalker, um, she really sort of—and this is really in the in the late nineteen twenties and early nineteen thirties—that she's just embracing bushwalking and rock climbing uh, as well as a um, activity. Um, And, yeah, likes to to go barefoot. And she just really showed what, you know, women were um, capable of. But even some of the women that were in the Sydney Bushwalkers, which was the club that um, Dot joined, they were also a little bit scandalised by, um, you know, her short shorts. She liked to wear her shorts very short. And she liked hanging, you know, she liked being with the blokes. She liked hanging out with the men and showing that she was just as capable as they were of... um, undertaking these you know really difficult uh walks and climbs so you know yeah women faced discrimination um but you know gradually it became an acceptable uh activity for women to do although you know the the activity still was quite often quite gendered um bushwalking clubs often you know it was sort of men were still the ones that led the walks and knew how to map read and uh, Etc. Women could do that stuff too, but men tended to put themselves forward as the ones best equipped uh, to do that. So, yeah, that, you know, that, that took a while uh, before there was a sort of much more equal uh, acceptance for women.
0: Mm. Well, that's And in, in your answer there, you mentioned the craze that happened, I think it was the 1930s where there were just thousands and thousands of people going off to these, organised bushwalks on a – or high, you made a distinction between bushwalking mm. and hiking. So could you comment on that distinction and just this um, ex- try and explain this um, social phenomenon of these massive bushwalks that seem to have happened f- on mass, but not for that long?
1: Yeah, sure. So what really started to happen in the 1920s as people are organising into bushwalking clubs and clubs facilitate um you know people being able to go further than they had before uh, because they're you know with other people that are really serious and keen about it so they're going on you know uh, overnight walks or walks of uh, you know a few days or even even weeks and so they what particularly happens there amongst clubs in Sydney and Melbourne and Hobart uh, at this time is this distinction develops between like, the, the real bushwalker, the serious bushwalker, was somebody who knew how to, to do that, to be self-sufficient in the bush for, you know, several days at a time so you could uh, carry all your own gear, which included your tent, your sleeping bag. Uh, you were able to, um, you know, cook your meals in the bush uh, and, you um, find your way you know use a map and a compass so this, this sort of idea developed that this was bushwalking real bushwalking and even that term i mean one of the things that you know i think is really interesting is that the, the term bushwalking this is where it actually develops so you might have had instances prior to this where the two terms might have been used you know when someone oh i went for a bushwalk but it, it wasn't kind of conceptualized that that was an actual um term people just tended to talk about walking and so when the Sydney bushwalkers forms in 1927 you know the term actually starts to get used more and more and gradually it becomes picked up as um, the term that we use in Australia to describe you know going for a walk in the bush for pleasure but it is in a sense you know really um, commandeered by these by serious bushwalkers and so when in the when you also get sort of a broader a range of people who are wanting to go to the bush might not be so experienced, might not be interested in going on on a long walk, uh, but you know still want to have that experience. The term hiking starts to be used to to describe that, and so there's this real sort of tension that emerges uh, in the late 20s and early 30s between serious bushwalkers and hikers and serious walkers. This is really played out in Sydney. Uh, serious walkers saw hikers as amateurs, where they were the professionals uh, and the mystery hikes was something that really um, fostered the idea I mean introduced I suppose in a way that idea of hiking as a term uh, and and increased that tension so what happened with the mystery hikes They were as you say in uh, the winter months of 1932 uh, they happened in other parts of um, the world as well in, in the UK and in North America um, just this very short-lived phenomenon where the railways um, were behind them. So it was sort of a money-making venture for them. So you would um, turn up at Central Station uh, in the various cities and buy your ticket and not know where you were going. So that was the mystery. And you would hop on the train and the train would take you, you know, to a station where you would then get out and go for a walk. Uh and there could be, as you say, thousands of people. So in Sydney, some of these walks, I think that the largest one uh, attracted 8,000 people. Uh, in some of the smaller cities like um, Brisbane, there were sort of several hundred. Um, but they, they sort of followed a similar kind of pattern in that they were enjoyed by, I mean, there might be children as well as, you know, lots of young people. I mean, Australia as a very much a youth-oriented movement, but also older people. So, you know, there might be... People in the 80s, they would often be commented on in the newspaper. So they encouraged, you know, uh, participation from uh, across the ages and also different classes. The, the bushwalking clubs tended to be uh, very middle class, whereas hiking also attracted uh, people from you know working class um, as well. And they would be, uh, you know, during the day as well. You know, you'd stop for lunch. Um, and there might be people who are on hand there to sell drinks or you know, sweets. Um, there might be a band that would play. So it's a very different idea of what we think of, you know, as a bushwalk. So you can see why serious bushwalkers would find this kind of walking and uh, not really appropriate to that idea of getting away. You know, serious bushwalking was about really getting off the beaten track, whereas these walks took place, you know, on wide kind of roads. Um and so they were controversial for serious bushwalkers, but now were are also very controversial uh, for the churches uh, because
0: they were on a Sunday and they were used by the
1: railways to make money. And so, you know, we're used to everything being open now on a Sunday, but in the 1930s, Sunday was supposed to be a day of rest. Um, you know, so even if you weren't going to church, it was just supposed to be a quiet family day. Uh, so the idea of the churches actually making money. Um, on a Sunday, was something that um, many of them, of the railways making money, was something that the, the churches railed against. Uh, and so the newspapers, I mean, I just loved, you know, looking at those newspapers because they were full of stories about these mystery hikes, photographs. Lots of the newspapers got behind them, um, but they also published um, criticism, criticism from the churches. Letters to, you know, loads of letters to the editor, editorials. Uh, yes, yeah, so they were very controversial, but then really just, I think, petered out because uh, I think partly, I mean, they only, they attracted, because they did attract such a wide range of people who weren't necessarily, you know, lovers of bushwalking. It was just that they went because, oh, all their friends were going and they were something that happened in those cooler months. So when they tried again to do it in the sort of cooler months um, the next year, there just wasn't the same kind of interest, just something that happened and then off it went. But I think it also did help to encourage others to, uh, you know, experience walking, hiking, bushwalking, whatever people wanted to call it. Um, but in smaller
0: groups, right? Um, then Melissa, the book, the book takes this interesting. Well, I thought it was an interesting turn, and where there's this, there's a you tell the story about Federation Peak and Bekevays. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Climbing Federation Peak in the 1940s. And Federation Peak is in the south of Tasmania in a very remote area, as I, as I understand it. A very difficult climb, and Mr. Beckavet's climbed it and left a, a, a pile of rocks on top of his landmark and proof of his conquest and took some photos. And there's a a, a wonderful contrast, which is what I'd like you to comment on, is the idea that that this was in the 1940s, so there's no there's no longer anything necessarily to discover in Australia as the Europeans like to do, but there's this. Seems to be this concept of if there is land that is unknown to the Europeans, it's just some uninhabited land that must be not only walked through, but in some way con- conquered. Some way sh- the, the pinnacle of climbing through that land is to get to the top of this thing called Federation Peak, as though the land before that happened was just this, as we say in Australia, terra nullis, this uninhabited land that so the local indigenous people there connection with it is just. Seems to be become redundant, and all it's about is these conquests. I'd like you to comment on that.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really evident uh, in the example that you use with Federation Peak. Um, but I think too, I mean, we really see that sort of in the the history of um, bushwalking, you know, in the nineteenth and, and into the twentieth century in Australia. So there's that. There is that thread that bushwalkers feel like they are. Yet walking in these unknown lands and that they are explorers and they very much position themselves as explorers discovering unknown lands, you know, really not recognising that, well, actually, hang on a sec, you know, we, we're walking here in places that have been walked for thousands of years. Um, so, like you say, they, they kind of ignored, neglected um, that long, long history and positioned themselves as explorers. So, yes, and, and so there was a real thread in, you know, in bushwalking. It's so highly visible with something like wanting to conquer Art Federation Peak, yeah, of of it being about the destination. So sometimes you would have an achievement, you know, rather than that kind of just uh, wanting to slowly walk through an environment and and sort of take your time. You know, there, there would often be tensions within bushwalking clubs between People who wanted to experience the bush that way, and those who wanted to. Right, it all has to be about achievement and conquering, and um, you know we are we are
0: the explorers. Um, So yeah, I think that that thread really
1: uh, is borne out Mm. with yeah with that and and that sort of just seeing if, if there was recognition of. You know, Aboriginal um, people, it it still tended to be that they would be positioned as, uh, you know, not there anymore. That was in the past. There wasn't a recognition and acknowledgement of a living culture uh, and, and as you say, of of people who had that um, connection with with place. So that's sort of something that's only really relatively recently,
0: I think, changed within um, bushwalking. Right, and I'd like to ask, along a similar line, a a recurring person in your book is Miles Dunphy, who was a cardiographer, and he he appears to have been perhaps the most central person in the 20th century almost in Australian bushwalking, and he made these amazing maps where he, he mapped all these places, and there's two concepts I'd like to touch upon. The first is... Is there a connect? Is there a, well, the relationship between the European idea of mapping everything, and until something has a name on a map, it's just nothing; it doesn't exist yet. It's just a, a, an unknown point, and needs a place gets gained significance when it is actually named on a map. But then, I think Miles might one of one of the first to start calling things, if he could, by the local indigenous names, or at least referring to them in some of his maps. Could you comment on that?
1: Mm. Yeah, so you're right that he's, you know, really significant because he was one of the early um, developers of bushwalking clubs and, and also because he was a real uh, – you know, he was one of these really serious bushwalkers that really pushed the idea that um, people who were undertaking this serious sort of walking were um, developing something new, um, you know, a, a new kind of activity. Um, and, he, yeah, he did produce I mean, volumes, he's, he's boxes and boxes of his material in the Mitchell Library uh, where because he, he writes about, you know, all his works, beautiful scripts. He just had the most, you know, beautiful handwriting. As a, as a draftsman and architect, you know, he yeah, was fine penmanship, which um, you really see again in his maps um, that he produced. So, you know, he was really important for that because he was helping to um, provide ways that other people could then, you know, find their way in, in the bush. But, yeah, he did tap into that idea that, um, yeah, that this was a, an empty land. And as you say, that, yeah, that, that kind of idea uh, really was evident that, yeah, unless you mapped and named, um, the place wasn't known. So, again, it was overriding that, that kind of mapping and naming that had gone on in a very different way by in, Indigenous people. But, yes, he did use um, Indigenous Place names um, where he could, so there was that sort of uh, recognition that was slowly um, making its way, sort of, you know, felt I suppose in the uh, in, in bushwalking in Australia, and, and yeah, Duffy was one of the people, and his son as well, uh, Milo. Um, yeah, did. Mm recognised, did recognise that there was uh, an Indigenous history, but as I say, it tended to be recognised as history, you know, not as a living living culture.
0: Right, I see. And yeah. I'd like to, um, there's another Miles story, Miles Dunphy story that I'd like to switch to a little bit about conservation and the role of national parks. Because you tell the, the story of how the blue gum forest in the Gross Valley in the Blue Mountains was, saved from a leaseholder who planned, I think, to clear it or clear a significant part of it. And then a national park, there's national park movement seems to arise. I'd like you to comment on the, the role of conservation and national parks. And even then within that, there seems to be a tension between, as you've said before, these, the real bushwalkers who really wanted to have this available only to them, as opposed to, say, people who wanted to drive into national parks. Yeah, so, I mean, we had, you know, Australia was very um, early um, when we look at
1: the history of national parks uh, throughout the world. So, you know, we did have some of the earliest national parks, Royal national park in Sydney, uh, for example, from 1879. But those early national parks, they did very much tend to be about recreation. Uh, So that was a sort of real focus more than conservation. So Dunphy was really important and, you know, with uh, fellow bushwalkers, in terms of encouraging, you know, we really need to take care of this, these places that we're finding uh, and enjoying and, and, you know, that are becoming so special to us. Um, they are under threat, so they need to be protected. So, yes, Blue Gum um, Forest in, in the, the Blue Mountains was an early example of a, a campaign that really was pushed uh, by bushwalkers, but they were also very fortunate to get some funds from the um, W.J. Cleary, uh, who was with the the railways um, and and sort of tourism that helped them uh, take over the lease, I think it was, of that uh, area and save, you know, this this stunning area. But, yeah, Dunphy really pushed for the idea of of the Blue Mountains having this, uh, you know, being a a big national park. I mean, that would take many, 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 many years. Um, But he was just tireless in his efforts, tireless in his efforts to uh, sort of campaign, but, but, but quietly too. I mean, in a way a kind of quiet activism, um, you know, not out there marching in the streets. Um, and, and similarly, you know, he's, he's passed that on to his um, son. So Marlow um, Dunphy was somebody who, who took Bob Carr um, in, into the bush and really, encouraged car to see the beauty of the environment and the need to protect it. Um, So yeah, bushwalkers, I think it's often overlooked the role that um, walkers like Dunphy, but you know, a whole range of others. and organisations like the National Parks Association, you know, across throughout Australia, have played in encouraging walking, but also encouraging that preservation and conservation of the bush. But yes, tensions in the in those national park movements, uh, you know, that, that Dumphy was sort of really pushing, because as you say, he they often did want they wanted places that could only be for serious bushwalkers. You know, they didn't want roads, they didn't want easy access. Um, they wanted it to be something that was that was difficult as well, you know, because it was. Then it was sort of the idea was, oh, if it's difficult, it's really worthwhile, you know. Um, and in, and we want it to be about getting away. We want it to be about preserving um, these relatively untouched places. If you put in roads and picnic tables, uh, etc., you're sort of taking away from that idea of getting away from it all. So that, I guess that's what we're often still striving to. Achieve now is some kind of balance um, between different recreational interests, and there's so much more competition mm. now. Yeah,
0: I was going to say as well with the with this concept again of, of real bushwalking, and I think Paddy Palin, who owns a, a fashion or bushwalking camping business, said real bushwalkers don't get lost. I imagine it just means they just, <laughs> they, they just keep walking or something. They never there's no end. There's no end. There's, it's like a Nike ad. There's no finish line. <laughs>
1: yes, and I and I guess he just was thinking. Well, you know, yeah, if you're a real bushwalker, you will know how to get yourself out of a situation. If you do find yourself somewhere where you're not really sure where you are, you know, because you are walking in areas where there aren't tracks, um, or or you or or kind of really um, detailed maps, but you will have the skill to find your way out. So that would be the kind of the marker of that
0: real bushwalker
1: idea so but but Paddy Palum too I mean he's you know fascinating because he also was uh he was broader in his view of what bushwalking could be than than Dumpy was um so he helped to establish you know a club that would cater to uh Europeans who didn't necessarily and you know, who came to Australia so sort of post-World War Two and might have found our uh, environment a little bit Uh, alien different to what they were used to. So he wanted, again, you know, people who were um, different skills. And I guess, you know, he kind of needed to because he wanted, that helped his business, you know. He he made bushwalking uh, more accessible to a wider range of people. But I think often people now might not even be aware that when they see a paddy pile and camping and equipment shop that, you know, paddy was a real person, Um, someone who came to Australia from the UK and uh, set up his camping and equipment business shop in the middle of a depression, you know, when he lost his job. Um, interesting time to set up a new business, but, you know, it grew from being in a room in his in his house uh, where he would, you know, make the packs and with a with sewing machine to this, you know, huge business that it's become mm. today. So, again, yeah, that equipment I think is a really important Um to consider the role that having equipment that helps you know that makes things like a little bit easier uh, for us to you know carry in relative comfort you know because early packs were often military designs and they weren't comfortable they weren't really appropriate um, you know same with walking boots and and tents you know we've had to take a long time for lightweight fabrics uh, to develop for example. So, yeah, Patty, you know, again, one of the characters, I suppose, that I just developed a huge amount of interest and respect and affection for mm. in the book and wanting to tell their story.
0: One thing you also like you to comment on is you draw out this this almost contradiction or strong contrast between as – if you – people who are familiar with Sydney, and it's probably the same in lots of capital cities around the world – there's a a camping section in the city in in Sydney. There's about eight or ten shops along along a street in the CBD, and they all have camping equipment. And it seems that I imagine it's all quite good. But the the real test in one way for the person like if I if I walked into that shop, I would be the most I would feel the most pleased if I bought the most expensive thing. And it's and it's just something to wear, even if I never go to the bush. It has a real cachet about about it. And it seems to have created the contrast that you can look like the true bushwalker, but never, ever leave a, a metropolitan area.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that idea, I mean, like I said, Powell, Paddy Palin formed in the 1930s, but and uh, there weren't a lot of equipment shops really until the 1970s. Um, and that's that's when you get, you know, your mountain designs, um, Kathmandu, etc., cetera, gradually um, forming and and. Yeah, establishing a kind of yeah, casting uh, line in a, in a particular street. Um, and then the gear gets, yeah, ever more diverse and, and colourful and expensive, yeah, you know, really, actually, like you say, really expensive. So, yeah, people can feel like they um, have the have the right gear, can look the part. Although, again, you know, what you would find there is a serious bushwalker would kind of look down on them and think, oh, they're just newbies. they just, you know, they're going out and they're getting the all the good gear, but do they actually know how to use it? Um, do they have the skill? So that kind of hierarchy, you know, uh, serious bushwalkers would often hang on to their paddy-paland pack, even if all these new designs um, had emerged, which might be more comfortable, but they were so wedded to their... Um, their older equipment that, that, that seemed then more authentic because it was, you know, it was bashed around by all the um, experiences they'd had, whereas someone, you know, out there with their new gear or that might just be wearing the gear on the street, um, they might actually be looked down upon a little bit by the serious walker.
0: Mm. Uh, yeah. Well, then I'd like to focus now on, it almost follows on from that, that there's been the rise of what's known as ecotourism and you give a couple of great examples in the book of talking about these raised tracks or these ways of making the bush wilderness more accessible, but it's on it's it's on a fixed track in a fixed location and it will attract a lot of people. One statistic you give is that Cradle Mountain in Tasmania and what I think it's called the Overland Trail is the most walked bushwalk in Australia. And then there's another one you talk about, I think it's the three like three, three capes track, which is yeah. apparently new as well, and it's. Uh, could you just and they seem to have these great luxuries on them. If you like, you can use USB. You can. Uh, you mentioned yoga club, yoga or something or other at, at one point. Can you comment on on this on this movement? And then when you comment on it, could you also talk about the trade off between drawing people into the wilderness, which could harm it, but then promoting the environment itself.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting tensions. I mean, the Overland track has you know quite a long um, history you know, going back into the 1930s, so we're talking about you know, from Cradle Mountain to Lake St. Clair, up that track there. Um, but yeah, in the 1980s, uh, a private company was able to build um comfortable huts. So there are some other sort of national park huts that, you know, can get very crowded. I mean, when I did the, that walk, I preferred to sleep uh, in a tent because I just didn't really like the idea of sleeping with a whole lot of people in a in a cabin. Um, but, yes, you can pay, you know, an extensive amount of money, a few thousand dollars, and walk uh, with a company where you're staying in very, well, for you know, bushwalking standards, quite luxurious accommodation, comfortable uh, beds, meals cooked for you, you're only having to carry uh, a light pack. So that sort of idea develops, you know, in the in Tasmania in the 1980s and, and other parts, but it's really become um, – it, it's starting to become much more of a model now. So uh, the Three Capes track, you know, opened a couple of years ago in Tasmania. Um, it's a, a four-night um, – sorry, three-night, four-day walk, it originally was anticipated that it would be more like the Overland. It would be sort of a longer, you know, the Overland, you can sort of do it in five, but, you know, you would really want to take six or seven uh, days probably. Um, and I think that the – and so, again, what you've got here, what you've got on the Three Capes track is you've got National Park huts that are very uh, – that have memory foam mattresses, they have the USB chargers. You still have to – you know, you're cooking your own meals – um, but you're carrying less because the cooking equipment is provided there, you know, because you've got a comfortable mattress. I mean, you're not, you're not carrying a tent. Um, and so to walk the three capes track in those national park uh, huts is around the sort of $500 mark, 495 dollars for an adult. Um, if you want to do the luxurious version, which is run by, you know, a private company, you're, you're paying sort of more two and a half three thousand. 3000 Dollars, and that's again where you're getting, you know, really nice meals being cooked, and one of them's got um, some sort of a plunge pool, like a small plunge pool at one of the uh, overnight accommodation stays. And so, the so you're getting this, you know, this real tension that's developing, and this is this is becoming a model uh, for parks, national parks, not just in Tasmania. There's a number of other uh, planned walks. Uh, tracks like this in Tasmania, but also it's taken off because the Three Capes Track has been phenomenally successful uh, in having these comfortable huts where you can walk relatively cheaply. You know, that's it's kind of more like a New Zealand experience. This idea, you know, having these kind of comfortable huts, but not I'm not talking here about the luxurious ones. I'm talking about the sort of the five hundred dollar one. Um, and and it's just been so successful. Obviously, interrupted by COVID, but so successful for Tasmania's uh, economy. Hmm. Uh, and so yes, other states are looking at this and saying, where can we do this kind of, of walking? So it's really happening elsewhere as well as often wanting then to have um, you know commercial interests and wanting to set up the luxury walk. So it's oh, yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because as you say, it allows a much wider group of people to experience the bush, to experience locations that might be, that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get to. Um, but it is also uh, bringing in, I mean, they need to do things like, you know, helicopters coming in to take out waste, uh, for example. You know, yes, laying down uh, tracks, raised tracks. So any anything like that is going to change the ecosystem. Uh, of places if you're introducing those sorts of things and introducing uh, more people. So there is that potential damage uh, to the environment that, that can be done. Um, I think as well, one of the issues is that if, if the money is spent on that kind of, you know, really expensive infrastructure, some of the other smaller, low-key tracks, the more routine tracks, if you like, they're not getting the attention, um, that they need either. So we're kind of getting these star tracks that are, um, yeah, you know, beautiful attracting people. I mean, it, yeah, it's a really, um, a side of tension, Mm. particularly some of the things that are developing where they are so expensive that they really are going to be for a very small number of people. Um, so, yeah, there's that idea of, like, do we have to make everything accessible? You know, can we not, I mean, I would say can we not still not have places that, you know, that do require a bit of effort mm. uh, to get into, yeah.
0: And I'd ask, we've got to finish up relatively soon, Melissa, but I think I'd like to to, to finish on asking you uh, about that in the sense of you give examples, it's as though once people work out that you can make tourism out of bringing people into the bush then it becomes a race to see what tourist attractions you can get to bring people into the bush who would otherwise not come in and it, it seems to move away from raised tracks and things like that very quickly to much bigger things that seem to have very little to do with actually being in the bush so there's scenic world at Katoomba which is almost like a fun park on the edge of the Blue Mountains and then there is mountain biking on ski runs and. There's the Lake Malbina development in the walls of Jerusalem National Park in Tasmania that's a World Heritage Area and they're thinking of, I think it's helicoptering or boating people into these areas that you could never otherwise go to. It seems as though there's, now that people have cottoned onto this idea, there's just no end to it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, And that's where it does become, you know, I think, really
1: complex um, where you are and again because you know like the the Lake Naivana one i mean that that's still uh you know hugely controversial hasn't the final approvals uh, it's it's been subject to court cases um etc uh, but yeah it's likely that that will helicopter people in and, and and uh and like it's very expensive the planned idea so it will be just for a small number of of um, people but yeah it, going into like you say these really remote Areas and and the idea of something like uh, at Cradle Mountain too. There's been a lot of talk about having um, a I've, I've lost the word for it, but like a like a, like on a ski resort where you have the um, cable car, right? You know, a cable car type system. So you know that the, the federal government actually a few years ago gave some money that was intended to go towards that uh, in Tasmania. So yes, these these sorts of attractions that do make the bush into like a theme park. Um, and just really taking us away from what, I guess, yeah, was at its core, which is about getting away uh, and really just stripping back and experiencing the quiet and experiencing, yeah, nature uh, and, the, you know, the environment. And I think, and, and, and the other thing I think too, you know, that we can be, I think bushwalking has the potential to, be a way that we can learn about uh, Australia's Indigenous history and ongoing connection um, to to the land, you know, so it has that potential. I'd like to see sort of uh, more of that happening as opposed to, yeah, the sort of theme park, money being invested in that kind of thing. Mm. Um, mm,
0: okay. yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Well, uh, thank you for your time today, Melissa, that's been great, and one, I'll, highly recommend this book to anyone who wants to just get a different perspective on the world it's it it opened my mind to thinking about this bush that hasn't i admit i kind of just took for granted or never i always enjoyed looking at gum trees but never really thought too much about the bush and there's just so many aspects to thinking about the human's interaction with the bush socially psychologically environmentally and i think it's it's an amazingly worthwhile book to read and as I said at the start above all that it's just a good story it's just the book just works it reads it has a real narrative flow I think that's well for what it's worth I think it's a wonderful achievement Melissa
1: thanks I really I'll that's really lovely to hear you say that because, uh, yeah, I did work hard on, on telling a good story. So I'm glad it's, I've succeeded.
0: Oh, good. And what have you got on, what's next for you in your academic career?
1: Well, I'm working on something quite different. I'm working on a, a history of um, dining out in Australia, well, particularly fine dining uh, from the 1960s. So, again, something that we take for granted. You know, we've got this uh, really uh, interesting restaurant culture, that we just think, oh, it's there, you know, and you can, you can go out. Um, so, there, again, I think the there's a great story to tell about how that's developed. You know, it hasn't just been in the last 20 years. It's not just because of Chef. There's a much longer history to the development of uh, high-end restaurant dining. So that's what I'm working on now.
0: Oh, that would be excellent. I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. Um, well, thank you, Melissa. That's Melissa Harper, everyone. The Ways of the Bushwalker is the book. I highly recommend it. And once again, Melissa, thank you for your time. Thanks, Pete. It's been
1: really great.